Welcome all you back of the napkin ninjas, you elevator pitch artists, build a jet while you fly at school of hard knocks heroes, dreamers, doers, join us in the foxhole, in the arena of life. This is the Grand Plaster Podcast, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders, and the origin stories that made them who they are today. Hey everybody, Graham Plaster here with Joy. Joy, it's such a pleasure, or should I say it's a joy to have you here. Love it. It's great to be here, Graham. And uh, Joy, tell me about your background. Um, Yeah, I would love to. So uh, my background is I liken it to throwing a bouncy ball up the grocery aisle and see what cereal box it hits. (laughs) Um, I was never somebody who had this, you know, vision and and very clear understanding of what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be. I was just an explorer. I was incredibly curious um, about the world. And so one of my favorite um, short answers to this question is um, at the end of the day, I'm a creative arts person. I did end up going to art school. Um, and, you know, as somebody who uh, studied creative arts, um, you know, the journey is unexpected to actually make it to institutions like the White House and the Pentagon. Um, But that creativity matched with technical depth um, really helped me look at things differently, right? So I'd say my background is non-traditional and I can get into more details about that. But anybody who says nothing's nothing's possible or, you know, something's impossible, I remind them, you're talking to somebody who went to art school, launched a few companies and worked at, you know, the, the largest government institutions in the world. So it is possible. Awesome. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, born and raised in Detroit. I'm very loud and proud about that. I've got a massive uh, Italian family who, you know, cuts the chase and calls me out on my on my crap and lifts me up when I need to um, need to be lifted as well. Uh, do you have any uh, siblings or what was it like growing up in Detroit? Yeah, um, really fascinating, actually. So my my family is very diverse um, in terms of professionally, like, you know, what they do, blue collar versus white collar and everything in between, along with um, religion and spirituality, along with political affiliation. So the way that I grew up was effectively um, arguing, you know, uh, in a good way to understand all those different perspectives, um, which I didn't really realize how useful it was at the time when I was a kid. It would, you know, it would, it would annoy me like a lot. <laughs> like, Why should anybody care about this? Right. Um, But my mother is a teacher. She's a uh, public educator. And so she taught me to explore and ask the right questions and really um, have empathy and understanding another point of view. Um, I grew up with a brother and a sister, younger brother, older sister. My younger brother is a musician, an incredibly talented musician and a carpenter. My sister is a doctor. And then you have me, the black sheep in Washington and Washington, D.C. And to put a little color into how I grew up and who my mother is, who is an amazing, amazing individual. Um, whenever my brother and I, or my sister and I would get into, you know, fights as kids, my mom would make us sit down in the middle of the living room floor and link arms right back to back and have to stand up without breaking arms and without letting one leg, like, you know, kick out before the other, because both of your legs are bent and you have to physically stand up at the same time where if one person went ahead or one person went behind, it was a no-go. And by the time, you know, we'd be pissed about it, right? We're just like, this is, this is, this sucks. Like, I hate this guy, whatever. And, um, you know, by the end of it, you're laughing your butt off and you realize, hey, we're both human. 
you know, like that's my bad. And then you're playing again. Right. So that's, that's a perfect, uh, you know, kind of snapshot to how I grew up as a kid. And, uh, so I think last time you and I talked, you mentioned a heritage also from your grandmother. Was there a story there about kind of the name of the company and everything? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my um, great grandmother, her name was Alberta Boone. I named the company after her. Um, she is a, you know, basically the real life version of Rosie the Riveter um, and a total badass. Unfortunately, her her life was filled with immense tragedy, like, like immense tragedy, right? She was um, uh, unfortunately abused as a kid, sold off to multiple orphanages and orphanages, and then abused again, raised her younger sister from the time she was seven on. She ends up getting married at age 14, has a kid at 15, becomes a widow at 17 with a two-year-old because her husband unfortunately took his own life. And then she buys a one-way ticket from Appalachia um, to Detroit. That the side of the family is tied to Daniel Boone, direct heritage, which is wild. Um, and she buys that one-way ticket to Detroit with my grandma Joy, her daughter, in tow, and starts saving her pennies at a, a soda fountain. And at this point, it's you know headed into the Great Depression, um, and then toward the tail end of the Great Depression the city of Detroit flips to become, you know, the war production center in, in our country to outbuild Hitler. So at this time, she had saved her pennies for, you know, quite a few, quite a few years. And she decides she's going to buy a restaurant in the ground floor of the General Motors building in Detroit. And everybody thought she was crazy because one is the Great Depression. It was a very sweepy, you know, um, build the sleepy building at the time. And then, um, you know, Lastly, she's a woman, right? What do you know about business? Um, well, she grew up uh, hustling and really managing money very, very well. So she understood how to create, you know, production lines quickly, input, output, maximize efficiency. So um, she ends up buying this restaurant and that sleepy floor turned into the headquarters of, you know, the Arsenal Democracy production because um, uh, Bill Knudsen was appointed by FDR to lead that. Bill Knudsen was the uh, CEO of GM at the time. So she goes from that to producing a lot of coffee to producing food for 40,000 auto workers that were getting upskilled. Um, then from there actually flips the restaurant into a, it's more of a cafeteria, right? It's not just a small restaurant. Um, at this point, she then ends up flipping it into a munitions production line because um, Nudson's like, okay, this is great. Thank you. But we now need this for war production. And she makes this case that, hey, if I can produce food on time every day for 40,000 workers eating, right? Then I can produce munitions. It's inputs and outputs. And oh, by the way, you have a labor shortage and I have all these women working for me. Um, you know, that we can teach how to do this. So they were melting down like metal hangers to do go produce um, all of those things. And we have some of the original uh, photos of this, like all the like old school Rosie girls, um, which is absolutely amazing. So when I named the company, um, you know, at its core, Boone is a defense contracting company, period. Like that's what we are, right? Um, a lot of times when you're building small businesses, we all do um, very interesting tactics to, well, we're different and, you know, we're special. And of course, of course you are, because it's a fabric of who you have. However, at the end of the day, it's a business, right? You have to have profits and losses, expenses. You have to have something that somebody wants to buy. Like it does, it's not that special. Um, but what I wanted to do is I didn't want to be just another um, quote unquote beltway bandit, right? Mm -hmm. I came on the buy side of acquisition in the Pentagon and I really wanted to um, figure out a better way to do things. So I thought, what better way than to name the company after my grandmother, who is the epitome of adapt and overcome? Like no matter what mm. was in her path, she was like, 
whatever, right? I'll figure it out. I'll build the team. I'll do it myself. It didn't matter. And when I, when I built it originally, Graham, I just kept hearing, we'll get Boone on the phone. They'll solve it. Get Boone on the phone. They'll solve it. And I was like, all right, well that, that works. So, um, so that's the origin of, of Boone. And, um, and, and I should say too, by the way, uh, my brother's equally inspired by my great grandmother, um, if not mm. more, honestly, and his appreciation for her history and background really helped propel me to explore that side of my family. More. Oh, neat. Um, yeah, he went through a name change. Uh, so his name is David Alberta Boone now. Um, and, and her fabric is really in a lot of his music, which has been really cool. Oh, so he's a musician. Yeah. I think you mentioned that. Okay. Maybe we can link to his music in the show notes. Yeah, that'd um, be great. So, so you went, you said you went to art school, is that right? Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I went to community college first. Um, I was very upset that I didn't know what four-year college I should put on my graduation cake in high school to the point where I was crying to my mother, which now looking back seems ridiculous, right? All my friends had their plan of Michigan State, University of Michigan. I didn't know what to do. Um, and so I end up going to community college for three years, Schoolcraft College for two and Washington Community College for one. Um, and at the same time, I'm a part of a performing arts group that travels all around the country and performs in um, NFL stadiums from, you know, basically spring training was April, May, and then we were on tour June, July, and August. Um, and basically, I can't believe I'm saying this, uh, that people are going to listen to this about me, but um, it's basically the professional version of marching band. Okay. Yes, okay. I said it. So I was a dancer. <laughs> It's super embarrassing, but also it was one of, it was one of the highlights of my life. It, um, drum corps international is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And drum corps is actually built around military practices. So it's similar to mm. a color guard, but it's like, yeah. it's more like rhythmic dancing and things like that. So, yeah. um, so anyhow, so I, I go on tour and I cram my, you know, my community college stuff in between for general ads, because I just didn't know who I was and what I wanted to do. Um, mm. and then eventually I go and I audition to be a backup dancer for Beyonce in Chicago at Hubbard Street Dance Studio. Um, I, I don't end up making the final cut and going on tour, but I make it to like the, you know, the last point, right? And I'm so excited and then I'm bummed out. Um, and, you know, I go back from Chicago to Detroit and, you know, I tell my mom like, yeah, you know, here's what happened, whatever. And um, I fell in love with the city of Chicago though. And so that mm. choice to go audition based on my dance background actually- What did you love about Chicago at that time? What was hooking you to Chicago? You know what? I think it was the fact that one, I may or may not have um, stole my mom's car to drive from Detroit to Chicago without telling her. And uh -huh. so I felt a little bit like a badass because I was like, uh -huh. oh man, I'm going to audition for Beyonce. But the uh -huh. people there um, were so, it just felt like home to me. I can't explain it. It just, mm. it's very, there's very Midwest about it, right? Um, yeah. Where people from all walks of life were there to pursue a passion and they were also mm. different. Um, and so, so I go back to Detroit and then I decide I'm gonna go to Columbia College Chicago on a dance scholarship because I mm. just love the city. I love the people. Like, you know, I was there for a weekend for an audition. Like it's mm -hmm. not like I spent a lot of time. So I ended up doing that. Um, and then uh at Columbia College, I started on the dance scholarship. I realized I'm not gonna make a career dancing. Like, you know, there's a there's no way to scale a dance studio. Um, it, and I saw that, which is weird now to think about that because I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur or business person at the time. Mm. So um from there I end up chatting with my advisor and I explain all these things that I like. I like people, I like this, I like that, right? And she's like, just 
you know what, you're going to be a marketing communications person. And I was like, okay, <laughs> so, so I do that. And then again, I pull this entrepreneurial thing out of nowhere and I actually design a degree with my advisor and it's a marketing communications degree with a focus in um, political science and crisis communications. The Columbia College Chicago does not specialize in that, but I had one professor who was a total badass with all these credentials. And I was just mm -hmm. like, I want to be you, right? Her name was Sandra yeah. Allen. I'll never forget her. So I build this degree and then I also minor in photojournalism um, and the photojournalism piece actually is what propelled me into a Homeland Security background because I got mm. recruited for some counter gang violence stuff in Chicago. So I fell in love with that after school um, and then that led me to Washington, to the White House and then um, eventually to the Pentagon. So Washington was what, what were you doing in Washington that led you to the White House? So I was working on a $15 million fundraising campaign for inner city youth in Chicago at the time. Mm -hmm. And with that got exposed to the white house to build policy around counter gang violence initiatives across mm. the country. Um, and so at this time I'm the acting executive director of the nonprofit foundation, um, the Jesse white foundation, uh, who mm. he's the secretary of state of Illinois. Um, he's a veteran, you know, 101st Airborne, uh, incredible um, American and public servant. So I, I'm working for him. And as I'm coordinating with the White House, right, I'm thinking I'm a total hotshot. First of all, I'm making $16,000 a year and working at a bar to like feed myself. Okay. But I'm yeah. the acting, acting executive director and I'm a total yeah. like, you know, who's who. So the White House asked me to apply for the internship program and the, the rules where you had to be two years within two years out of your undergrad. And mm -hmm. I was basically at like one year and 10 months. And, okay. you know, I'm thinking, well, why would I go be an unpaid intern and blah, 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 whatever. I have this great job. Um, and then a mentor of mine called me out and was like, it's the White House. Period. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Right. And um, mm -hmm. so, so I say, you know, you have a good point. Let me go and apply to this internship program. But it felt it almost felt like a demerit, right? Because I worked so hard yeah. to put myself through school, so hard to like align all these things and figure out who mm -hmm. I was. I, at the moment I finally figure out this is who I am, then there's this whole other diversion, right? Yeah. So yeah. um so I take it, I apply, and um, and I get waitlisted for the internship program. Now I'm pissed. I'm like, wow. well, you asked me to apply and now I'm waitlisted, <laughs> right? And yeah. um and then, and then obviously I make it off the wait list and I end up uh, being direct, uh, direct support to the management and administration directorate running the internship program for 170 interns, um, working on diversity and inclusion from HBCUs and community colleges of which I went to, right? And not yeah. just people who went to Harvard and Stanford because um, you need yeah. a blend of both of those brains to be effective. So I got recruited yeah. to the White House and then I got again, recruited to the Pentagon, um, just because I do believe in the canvas strategy, which is how do you clear the path for other people, right? Like mm -hmm. you can be an amazing artist, but if you don't have the canvas to actually paint on, then it, your art doesn't matter because you have no way to craft anything. So um, so I think that that for me of just making everybody's life a little bit easier and being immensely curious because of how I grew up and I just wanted to figure things out and make things more efficient, that enable people to understand they could trust me to figure it out right um and so that got me some really interesting assignments where did you end up at the pentagon um so i first interviewed for um a position um in the honorable sharon burke's office at the time operational energy plans and programs 
I interviewed with Colonel George. I'll never forget it. He called me randomly, said, I got your resume from the White House. We need a special assistant. You know, will you interview? And at the time, I didn't even know what a colonel was. I didn't know what an 06 was. I was like, this sounds exciting. Uh, yeah. Yes, sir. Right. So, so I say, yes, of course. You know, he's like, I'll schedule it for tomorrow. And it was, it was virtual. So I spend the next 20 hours researching everything I possibly can about Sharon Burke and operational energy plans and programs. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know anything. I had a three ring binder with highlights and like all of these nice. different things, just trying to like, you know, grasp mm -hmm. what, what she was really um, prioritizing. And I realized, Hey, this sounds really freaking cool. Like, oh my goodness, efficiency in military bases and weaponry and like all this other stuff. Right. So mm -hmm. I interviewed the next day. They offer me the job on the spot. It's Thursday. I say, can you start on Monday? I'm in Chicago. <laughs> this is in DC. And at the time I was finishing the $15 million capital fundraising campaign for the um, Jesse Witt Community Center on the west side of Chicago. And, you know, for me, I'm okay taking the bull by the horns and, and just kind of winging it in an opportunity that comes in front of me if I think it's the right thing to do, but not at the sacrifice of a team who counts on me. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. I, I tell Colonel George, I thought it breaks my heart. Right. I'm like, man, this is it. This is my one shot at the Pentagon. There's no way I'm making it there again. Mm. I have to say no, but I knew in my heart, mm. I'm sorry to do. I was like, I need two weeks yeah. and you guys don't have that. So anyway, um, he says, well, that's really unfortunate. We'd love to have you. Um, you know, I'll, I'll keep your resume on file. And I thought it was total BS. I was like, okay, well, that's just like a cute little olive branch. Right. And by the way, I still talk to Colonel George I today, and he has um, helped uh, bring me amazing talent at Boone, which is like really, really awesome. So eight months later, I get another phone call um, about uh, Secretary Gates, as well as um, the deputy and the undersecretary of defense for acquisition technology and logistics at the time, it was Ash Carter, um, needing a speechwriter. And I said, yeah, I can write. <laughs> I'll come interview. Um, and so, so I come and interview and it was the right timeline and all of that. And I actually end up um, working directly for Frank Kendall, who was the principal deputy at the time, and then followed him up to the, the honors office. Um, you know, he was many times called the acquisitions are um, when it was acquisition technology and, and logistics. So I spent five years supporting him. Okay. So, and was there anything between that and you starting Boone? What was the kind of the, the progress from the Pentagon to, to what was next? Yeah, when I was working for, for Frank, um, I, I should say the Honorable Frank Kendall now, because he is the Secretary of the Air Force. Um, uh, he, something that I really, really respect and admire about him is the fact that when I watched him lead an organization, he was able to pull on every spoke of the wheel. And what I mean by that is he has one, um, a legal, well, he's an engineer first and he will always tell you that, Joy, I'm an engineer first, right? Um, I get beat up for that all the time. So he's an engineer first, right? Very technical. He's got an MBA. He's got a law degree. He has an immense passion for humanitarian um, efforts, right? Which I really appreciate. And he's an executive leader to make a team work together. And so while I was working for him, I saw that and I saw because he could pull on those backgrounds, how much more he could affect in terms of change and progress. So about halfway through me supporting him, um, he supported me to go and get my MBA while also continuing to work for him, which in hindsight, I would not do twice. <laughs> it was insane. Um, so I get my MBA and then through my MBA, I had uh, a couple of international residencies, um, one in Qatar, one in Estonia, which was fascinating, and um, one in Turkey. 
And through those residencies, I started getting really, really curious and passionate about offensive cyber, in particular in Estonia, right? Because they border Russia. So the way that they built, built their X-Road is incredible. The way that they procure is incredible. So much smaller, right, than us. So it's a little bit more, more manageable. Um, and I started pulling on that thread and asking him questions of why do we procure software this way? Why don't we, you know, what about this? What about this title and authority? Could we leverage it this way, right? Like, I just became curious about, um, you know, creative contracting before it was cool. And so it, so I actually was too early to market with Boone, right? Eventually it, it came, it came um, you know, everything caught up, but going through that process and that curiosity, I realized that there was an opportunity to build something that was the commercial version of a rapid capabilities office, right? Okay. And for uh, people listening who maybe aren't a part of government and more on the tech side, who have no idea what that means. Basically, it's a way to move fast um, to achieve an outcome leveraging contracts, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so I start chipping away at that use case. And then as my final thesis, um, I did some root cause analysis on failed um, weapons programs, big ACAT level one programs, and tried to get to the root cause of failure. And all of that analysis helped me package the original go-to-market for Boone, um, which I didn't know at the time. You know, I, I think I've mentioned to you, I actually tore the company down twice and kept the same okay. name because it didn't work, right? When you said uh, tore the company down, what you know, what does that mean in terms of like employees or kind of structure of the company? Oh yeah, gutted, gutted employees twice, lit all the processes on fire, re-looked at my product and service line, right? Re but quite literally um, gutted everything but still was billable enough as me personally, yeah. right? But, you know, my, my biggest issue is how do you scale joy, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to build an army of mini-me's. I want to attract very different walks of life and, you know, brain power and expertise, just like the wheels folks I talked about, to achieve right. something better than I could achieve by myself. Um, but in order to do that, I had to make sure I had the right, um, the right product market fit, right? So, so I... Um, I tear the company down twice because when I went to market, I didn't, this is my biggest mistake. Um, I didn't spend enough time answering the following questions. Is Boone a company that should stand on its own? And is it a service line? Is Boone a product, right? Is it a product company that should stand on its own? Is Boone something that should exist as a maybe a new business unit inside the safety and security of a big services arm like SAIC or Deloitte or IBM, right? Um, and a lot of entrepreneurs, they're candidly pissed about the market in some way and want to do it better, right? And sometimes doing it better is I'm going to launch my own company. Sometimes it's I'm going to launch a product. Sometimes it's I'm going to launch an offering within somebody else's company. And I think that those questions are really, really, really important to answer um, in, in the trade-offs that exist of building it completely from zero versus having all of your back office support for you know, personnel and training and all these things that you don't even think about. Um, you know, that's something that I think I would highly recommend that anybody out there trying to build something mm -hmm. should spend time answering those questions. Do you see yourself as the catalytic person or the executioner, like the person who gets it done or both? Ooh, I love this question. Um, I'll give you a real answer. Um, <laughs> so my initial reaction is, well, it depends, both. Um, and then the answer is I can't be both because it's a disservice to the company and me trying to be both 
has could like immensely inhibited our growth, right? Which is why I'm really grateful um, to have our, you know, my partner and our VPs um, around us to, to get things done. So I am the person that you call in crisis response, okay? Like sky is falling. Oh crap, what do we do? I Like I am that person. Wartime CEO, like with a little bit different personality in, in the execution side, that's me. I do really well in crisis. Um, I'm the person who builds the plane from nothing and gets it to 40,000 feet. Okay. And I'm talking like production, it works, tested, taking off, the experience is there, like everybody's in their seats, guests are having a good time, pilots, you know, killing it, stewards are killing it. Uh, everything is great, right? The minute that I'm at 40,000 feet, I'm like, I'm bored. Goodbye. Somebody else land the plane. Where are we going next? I don't really care, yeah. like, but I'm done. Right? right. And so I am the, I am the, like the catalyst for sure. And I'm the get it done, you know, um, at all costs the right way. But the minute that it comes into, um, you know, my biggest weakness as a founder is I'm not the integrator. I'm not the COO. I'm not the, I am very detailed and organized, but I'm not the details person, right? Um, and so, so yeah, so my team members do a good job of, of calling me out and politely asking me to color in the corner if it's not time to, you know, land. They're like, you're trying to land a plane right now. That's us. I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? good. I yeah. mean, that's great leadership. So, um, all right. So tell me about um, a little bit about launching Boone. You, you talked, touched on that, but tell me a little bit about where you are right now. What are you passionate about right now with your company? And some, I know you're doing some other nonprofit work that kind of ties into the company. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, right now, the, the thing that I'm most passionate about at the highest kind of visionary level is building a team of really resilient people, right? We tripled the size of our company in a COVID environment. And we're in the most, right, one of the most regulated industries with the highest barrier to entry in the world as a woman in national security, right? Those are a lot of things, you know, going against you. And, um, and you know, I don't use that as an excuse by any means. It's just facts that is, you know, confront the brutal facts, accept your reality and deal with it, right? That's my reality. And um, transferring that sense of resilience into the team where the team in certain instances becomes even more resilient than me, where I don't have to always be the person like, you know, pulling everybody up the mountain is so inspiring at the highest level of leadership because there's, people are now making Boone their own, right? It's not just, well, what does Joy want? It's like, well, I wanna do this within the conditions that have been set. And it's magical because it's ideas and perspectives that I would have never thought about. It's things that I would have never put in play, but it's things that make us better. And I just, I absolutely loved that part of the growth jump. And I thought I was going to hate it. And uh, one of my board members, Rose Wang, who's an incredible uh, mentor to me, a serial entrepreneur um, who's built and sold multiple defense services companies. She, you know, I told her a couple of years ago, I don't think I'm really going to like that part of the journey. Right. And she said, we'll see. And the other day she shot me a note, you know, with basically a little jab of, hey, remember that time you said that you're going to hate this part? <laughs> and I'm like falling in love with it, right? So, mm. so the transfer of resilience piece is amazing. It's so fun. Um, and it's really cool to watch other people bring their ideas to life. Um, I'd say from a, you know, from a, a technical standpoint in terms of the offering itself, um, we're, we're really, really good at intelligent automation because we had to be. We had to help our government um, clients become more efficient with mundane processes. And, and I have a, a passion for design and, um, you know, which won't surprise you as a creative person. 
and that experience of the front end design features and um, and what the government can do to accelerate um, impact, but also save money has been so fun. Um, so that's one thing that I'm really enjoying scaling more out of. And then um, the third thing that I'm enjoying is building this arsenal of technology companies that can really help America's strategic advantage, right? Companies that would have never thought about doing business, you know, government customers that would have never even reached that, um, you know, that part of the industry, um, really actually getting at the answer to non-traditional, right? Because non-traditional isn't just word of mouth of somebody else that you met at the same defense conference. Sometimes it is, but non-traditional to me is like, who are the people you can't even find, right? What does that look like? And can they do it? better, more effectively um, and efficiently and more resourceful. So that's been, um, that's been a lot of fun. What is something that you like to recommend to your friends and family to try out or your colleagues, you know, some resources or books or podcasts or whatever? Ooh, um, so I would highly recommend for anybody who is like me, which is building all the time in, you know, from the defense side and, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, engaged in nonprofit and humanitarian work is to make sure that you read the book, The One Thing. And the book, The One Thing gives a very um, balanced approach of how to give, you know, the core aspects of your life, everything, right? And it's really easy to, um, you know, for me from, August to December, I basically, you know, said to my uh, lovely significant other Ashton, I told him like, hey, I'll see you in six months. Afghanistan's falling apart. I'm going to go help over here. Right. Which he's patient. And, and I appreciate that about him. Um, but that's not necessarily fair to just, you know, hijack one thing for another all the time. That's not healthy and balanced because if you're not a whole person, none of it matters. And so the book, The One Thing really helped me look at my principles professionally and where I wanted to spend my energy, my principles in my nonprofit work, in myself with boxing and in my relationships, not just Ashton, but also my friends and family. Um, and so it, it gave some really good advice of a gut check of when and how to say no, which is sometimes hard for me because I just want to figure it out and I want to be the one to execute it. Um, so uh, it also helped me with Boone because I realized I don't have to execute everything myself. And now my job is how do I build a team to carry out the series of steps, right? So the book, The One Thing is um, amazing. The other thing that I would recommend highly for anybody trying to build a business is to look at an organization called the Entrepreneur's Organization. The Entrepreneur's Organization is um, similar to the Young President's Organization, YPO, but the revenue requirements are a little bit lower. Um, and then the Entrepreneur's Organization also has an accelerator program. And that accelerator program, um, you have to have about $250,000 in revenue. Um, it doesn't have to be recurring. And then um, it's a network of mentors who have built and done things before to help you get from the 250K to your first million. And then once you're in the, the million threshold in EO, right? So you go from EOA to EO, then you go from a million to five. Um, and it's, you know, it's very, very, uh, it's like a mini MBA um, with real resources and real relationships and people who have failed miserably and had to figure it out. So um, EO is great and EOA is great. Their um, events are all over the country um, and they're also a global organization. So I've, I've really enjoyed my mentorship and relationships from them. That's a great resource. But the one thing though, for people like you, and I would say I'm in this category too, that are catalytic people, right? It feels like anyone who comes to me and says, you know, Graham, you just need to have a lot more focus and say no to everything. And I'm like, well, 
maybe for certain personality types. I mean, yeah. I'm a catalytic person. I want to be starting 20 things at once. I've got a book of ideas and inventions and books and, you know, like that I want to write. And like, how do you balance that advice? Obviously it feels like great advice. If that's who you are, you need to hear it. Right. Yeah. How do you yeah. balance that advice of focus versus someone who actually is going out and doing experiments and trying things new all the time? Because anyone who's yeah. super focused is going to criticize that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that um, I, I think that's very, very well stated. So what I am working on now for myself is when people tell me that I need more focus, I, I want them to politely say, take a number and get, get in line. Right. I'm busy building stuff like get out of here. Um, sure. Obviously, that's an inappropriate response, but I actually don't look at it as lack of focus. OK, I think where me personally, where I have misapplied my energy is. I have applied it to all of this discovery all the time. And it's a lot of activity, but then I never get to the outcome. And that's annoying because I'm a driven outcomes-based person, right? Um, in the uh, in a bunch of personality uh, tests I've taken, I'm either a trailblazer or a driver, right? And so like that experience to put all my energy and then have something not happen is very irritating and frustrating. So um, it's not about lack of focus. It's about the fact that we as catalytic people have to anoint and identify operators in our lives, core operators, right? And this is personally too, right? Um, not just professionally. So if you can identify a really good operator and an operator, what that means is somebody who can integrate vision into tactical steps and own it enough and even make the vision better, you know, pull it down from the clouds a little bit to propel something forward. So um, me right now with all of these different ventures that I have going on that I'm really excited about, I look at my weakest ones that aren't performing or aren't moving as fast as I want. And I'm like, oh man, I'll make time for it this weekend. And instead it's not, I need to make time for it this weekend. It's shit. I need to find a really good operator to carry that stuff out. Because if mm -hmm. I have a team of small operators, then all these things can, you know, come to light. And the other thing too, you know, Graham, is that it feels really good to be needed on a team like mm. really good when you have been asked by other people that you know and respect to say hey graham i'm really struggling with x can you help me figure this out it's amazing mm. to have ownership and autonomy to do that for somebody and i think in in my instance sometimes i forget that right because i'm like mm. oh well they wouldn't want to do that like i'll just figure it out so for me it's not about lack of focus it's about lack of operators and lack of integrators and you know building that core function for catalytic people I have found, um, you know, you can turn $1 into three a lot faster. Mm, that's great. All right. So parting shots, if people want to participate with what you're doing or Boone, and I, you didn't even talk about your boxing. So if you want to throw something in about that um, and some of the, you know, the charity work you've done with that, I'd love to hear it. But uh, yeah. how can people reach out to you, follow you, engage with you? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, in terms of uh, other passion and excitement that I'm looking forward to this year, um, I was uh, supposed to have another charity fight last June um, for boxing. I, I find a lot of myself in a boxing ring for better or for worse. I'm very humbled, right? I'm either kicking butt or getting my butt kicked and that's no different than building a company. So um, it really helps me kind of align my priorities and focus and helps me think clear. Um, and my relationship with my coach is just really special. He's a, he's a veteran and he's a, um, 
deputy sheriff of PG County. PG County is very similar to Detroit in terms of, you know, um, makeup. Um, so we do a lot of work with inner city youth uh, together, which has been great. So I'm looking forward to uh, my next fight this year and raising money. Um, I think this year I might, you know, usually I raise money for the EOD Warrior Foundation um, or the Green Beret Foundation or, you know, another veterans organization. But I think this year I'm actually going to pivot and either raise money for um, Afghanistan refugees and or Ukraine and or both um, because I've gotten uh, heavily involved in humanitarian work sitting on a couple of nonprofit boards uh, to help the people of Afghanistan, the people of Ukraine. So we'll see, stay tuned with where the fight is. Um, and I would love to you know, crowdsource uh, any dollar, any dollar matters. So um, to help donate to uh, people who are in need. Um, in terms of where to find me and hang out, I'm super active on LinkedIn. Uh, Joy Shannaberger, I'm the only one, so you can't miss me. Um, and, you know, I'm also, I'm really bad at Twitter. I'm trying to get better at it, but I'm at Joy Ange on Twitter and at Joy Angel on Instagram. Awesome. Okay. And if people want to reach out to Boone and do stuff with Boone, what is a good way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can shoot me a note directly, joy at Boone, B-O-O-N-E dot group, G-R-O-U-P. Um, and then very quickly, you'll meet a uh, talented team of individuals um, helping carry everything out. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show today. I'm Graham Plaster, and you've been listening to the Graham Plaster Podcast. Get show notes and more at grahamplaster.com.